Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast, boys and girls. Where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas. Joining me tonight, John Taylor of Fangraphs.com, up there in New York City. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing well. How about yourself? Not not too bad, sir. Not too bad at all. Uh, I'm doing better than the friend of the pod, Robert Silverman of the Sports Reporters Assemble edition on this very podcast. Um, he's not doing well. He, he, he's struggling with uh, the Mets GM search, which is, uh, let me check my notes here, John. Uh, it's, it's not going well. Yeah, I mean, that feels like an understatement at this point. It hasn't, it, it, it's not like it had started well either at any point. It started poorly and has just somehow managed to keep getting worse. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess this is what happens when the guy in charge of your search really should not be doing anything for your team anymore and when he's relying on the expertise of people like Chris Christie as his advisor. So, yes, all it, this is all part of the course for the Mets, but it's part of the course in a way that I that I imagine a lot of Mets fans thought they were leaving behind. And that has just not been the case. It, it turns out that it's really not just an ownership thing. It is just the whims of particularly arrogant people who think they know more than everything. And it seems like the one, you know, regardless of, of, of who owns the team, it does seem like that is a common thread among the Mets. It was the way with that way with the Wilpons and it is clearly been that way with Sandy Alderson and it very clearly is that way with Steve Cohen that's how you end up in a position where your top candidate for general manager is a corporate lawyer who hasn't worked in baseball in almost five years and works for the law firm that has gone out of its way to represent uh, Donald Trump in virtually every piece of litigation he has been involved in over the last two or three years and granted you know and also that this is someone who almost certainly um, well, it's actually funny. I say it's almost certainly came recommended by Chris Christie, and then, but I believe someone last night, either John Heyman or Joel Sherman, tweeted out that sources, quote unquote, which is just a roundabout way of saying Sandy Alderson, <laughs> uh, that Christie did not actually recommend uh, the person we're talking about, Adam Cromie, who works for Jones Day and used to work for the Nationals. And the reason that he is not recommended by Chris Christie is because Jones Day represented the victims, so to speak, or the other members of his administration when he was the governor of New Jersey during the Long Bridgegate scandal. So on the one hand, you know, okay, fine, the the slight soothe that, okay, maybe Chris Christie isn't involved with this, coupled with the reminder that Chris Christie is involved with Sandy Alderson, though, and this guy, or at least the explanation, this guy can't be recommended by Chris Christie because he was on the other side of the Chris Christie scandal. So none of this really scans particularly well for the Mets. I mean... It's just hard to understand what in particular and great. I don't and this is all with with the caveat that I obviously do not know Adam Cromie. I don't know what work specifically he did for the Nationals, but it's really hard to imagine what about a guy who has not worked in the sport for in the baseball equivalent of like 50 years because four years at this point in, in baseball, four years away from a front office is a very, very long time. And beyond that, this is someone who is coming now from a world of corporate law, which is not a sector that is very well represented in most major league front offices. This is not someone who's bringing a unique or different vantage point uh, to the job he, he would be theoretically hired to do. 
I've always said sports need more lawyers in front Definitely. Offices. I mean, that's if anything, especially baseball needs, it's more lawyers. There just mm-hmm. are not enough of them anywhere. But I just I don't understand what about this makes any sense at any level, especially given that this is the same team that had the brain genius idea to make a player agent, the general manager a few years ago for similar cronyish reasons and that uh, Brody Van Wagenen was good friends with Jeff Wilpon and that's how that all came about. And then watched as, as Van Wagenen, at best, left the team floating in neutral and at worst made it actively worse by giving away Jared Kalenic for Edwin Diaz, who has been fine, and Robinson Cano, who has been very, very far from fine. I, I don't understand the I don't understand the appeal. I don't understand the process. I don't understand I, I don't understand any of this. The only thing that makes any of it I think intelligible and clear to me is the fact that Sandy Alderson, based on what he said to uh, reporters during this week's GM meetings in Carlsbad, has made it abundantly clear that he is going to remain in charge of of baseball operations for the Mets. They are not hiring a president of baseball operations. They're only going to hire a GM and that maybe that GM moves up to the president of baseball operations position at some point, but that for the time being, it is still Sandy Alderson's show. And so that probably helps helps explain on top of the general weirdness that is Steve Cohen and the malaise that infects his franchise from top to bottom, why they've been rejected by every remotely serious candidate that can exist in the sport. And I think that I mean, obviously, that is how you end up hiring if they if this is a guy they hire and, and it's it's sounding more and more like it is going to be Aaron, uh, is it Aaron or Adam? I, I, I feel it bad. Like if I've already gotten that wrong. Wait, which one? Uh, Chrome is it? Oh, Aaron? it's Adam, I think, right? Adam. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just gonna double check because I I don't want to get the dude's name wrong. But it does. I think it's it, Adam, it, right? It Mike, okay. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how I convinced myself it was Aaron. Um, just for a second there. You were thinking of Aaron Sorkin, the the man behind Clearly, uh, the I, West Wing. I'd probably make a better general manager. Mm. That's definitely not true. It would definitely make trade negotiations that much more interesting. Everything is just one endless walk and talk in in the halls of City Field, but. I mean, but this is how you end up hiring a guy who has not worked in the sport in years and who is not bringing and is not coming from a place. This is that's the thing. He's not even coming from the kind of place where you can feel good about like, oh, where at least he was working somewhere. No, he's working at Jones Day. That's a, a huge white shoe mergers and acquisitions law firm that, again, and I'm just going to keep pointing it out because it is it should be relevant, has been defending the former president in all his litigation when it comes to his false claims of, of election uh, improprieties and theft when it comes to the various crimes he committed, when it comes to just keeping him out of jail for all intents and purposes. This is not someone who should be in charge. And again, I don't know Adam Cromie. I, I'm sure he's a smart person who, who understands baseball at the very least on a level that he was able to work in a front office. But what about this makes any sense for the Mets? What, what, this is not someone who's coming here with new ideas or who is been seen as some kind of visionary or 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 even you're even like an iconoclast in a way of like at least for the van wagon and stuff you you that dude was at least in intimately involved with the current state of baseball and could at the very least bring you a different perspective of well an agent has to look at players in a different way than most front offices do what is this guy bringing to the table that the mets could use or need it, it, it's beyond me it is very clearly just the result of an extremely bad process run by someone who should not be in charge of the process. I don't really see how you can come to any other conclusion if this is what the Mets end up doing, because there's nothing about his resume, about his current position, 
about anything involving Adam Cromie that would make you think, yeah, that guy needs to be a general manager right now. Yeah, and I think, I mean, like you mentioned, the looming uh, prospect of Sandy Alderson just being in perpetual power in New York, uh, his son also uh, seemingly carrying a lot of weight within that organization, but also just that like... And Chris Christie's son too, it should be noted, that Chris Christie's son works in, in the Mets player development uh, side of things. Mm. Um, so it's just a very succession-y type deal going on uh, in Queens. And you know what's also... I, I just completely had forgotten about the Brody Van Wagen era. That feels like a lifetime ago. Like I, I genuinely forgot all about that portion of Mets history. Like that's just out, out of the window. Um, it's just weird too because we were pretty on board with what he was doing when he first took over. Like before everything came out about Jared Porter... I think people were like, oh, this makes sense. Coming from the Diamondbacks, the Cubs, his pipeline, his background, all that kind of stuff, younger guy. And then obviously all that stuff comes out and it's over and it's gone. So they, they whiffed. However, like it made sense. Like the whole process wasn't this weird. And now it's just that like Scott's gone, Porter's gone and just the Aldersons remain and the Christie's remain. And I can understand why no, nobody really wants to be a part of this. But I think also too, if I'm not mistaken, John, haven't a lot of teams like declined to allow their GMs yeah. to interview yeah, for this job? They have, and th- to me, that's. I mean, I don't. I don't know exactly how that process worked because it works because I'm not uh, knowledgeable enough in that way, and I'm certainly no insider when it comes to front office stuff. But yeah, that's been part of it too. Is that they've just been rejected mm. out of hand, not just by the candidates they're looking for, but by the teams themselves, because I think in most cases. Um, I think at least for the folks like on the level of like David Stearns or Brian Bean or Brian Bean, uh, Billy Bean, I was uh, thinking Brian Sabian for a minute there, that it would be a lateral move. And certainly, I mean, there's no good reason for the Brewers to allow David Stearns, for example, for example, for the Brewers to let David Stearns go to the Mets. He's doing a very good job in Milwaukee, you know, and it also doesn't seem like he has any particular interest. But I think that's part of it, too, is you, you're not really getting the sense or haven't gotten the sense that anyone who's been targeted by the Mets has any interest and i think that's the thing it's not even so much if they don't have any interest i think to a large degree having the team say we're not going to make this person available is pretty much just the cover and the nice way of that candidate saying i'm not interested in this what's a way i can get out of this without having to say i don't want to do this you know and and i think when sandy alderson talks about oh the you know this isn't about me or this isn't about the organization it's about how tough new york is and how it can be a tough bullshit it's not about how tough the market is that's not a thing at all. No no GM in their right mind would turn down an organization of this size and of this kind of financial capacity just because the tabloid back pages can be a little can be a little mean sometimes. That's nonsense. There are only 30 general manager slash president of baseball operations slash whatever the title you want to use jobs in in all of Major League Baseball or, you know, 30 to 40, depending on how teams organize or have their org chart set up. There's no reason to pass that up unless you are convinced or have the impression that the team you're going to is a train wreck. And it's really hard not to it's really hard not to get that sense from the Mets, not just from the way that they've been approached by the candidates that they're interested in, but also by the fact that they're going to end up hiring a corporate lawyer who hasn't worked <laughs> in baseball in five years. There's no way you get to that end point without the whole process itself being a train wreck. And it's just and I think to what you were saying about Alders, and I think it it definitely made sense at the time. Because I think the impression that we all had, or at least the the opinion we all had, was that Sandy Alderson was going to be the adult in the room, 
the baseball lifer who's been around the block, who knows what he's doing, who can you know help shepherd a new owner through a, a transition through a transitory period. And I think in that in in that same vein that the hirings of both Porter and um, Zach Scott made perfect sense because I think that the idea was that those two were going to be the future of the Mets, a la something like the way like the Met like the Twins have with Thad Levine and, and Derek Falvey or the way other teams have, have set it up like the the like the Rays used to with um, Eric Neander and Chaim Bloom. Clearly that fell apart because the Mets didn't do their vetting. And that alone probably should have been enough of a sign that Sandy Alderson should no longer be involved in any kind of search process because those were his handpicked those were his handpicked choices. And like you said, those were normal those were normal processes. Those were normal that followed the normal way the guys that that front office members get hired. They were poached from another team and given promotions. And like you said, those were both those were both guys in, in Porter and Scott who had or at least purely in the baseball realm of things, were seen as guys who were smart, who were hardworking, and who had bright futures. But again, if if the guys you hire end up being... <laughs> uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If they, if they end up being respectively a hideous sex creep and a drunk, what does that say about the person who picked them and about the and about the search that, that brought them to the Mets in the first place? That alone should have been enough. That the fact that the search the second time around is producing even worse results... In terms of like, I'm sure Adam or hopefully Adam Cromey is not, you know, a sex creep or a drunk, but he doesn't have any business running a major league team, not after being out of the game for as long as he has been. And certainly not him being the end result of a process that has seen like two or three dozen different people tell the Mets no. It, it really just it really just makes you wonder what in the hell is going on over there and why no one seems to be capable of of making the decisions that make any sense i i don't understand especially after the year the mets had both off the field and on it why sandy alderson is still allowed to make any of these decisions unless he has simply convinced steve cohen that none of this is his fault he knows what he's doing and cohen is just too stupid to know otherwise it again it really just gives you more weight or at least uh evidence that billionaires are not very smart people that this is that this is not this is not the the process that you would have envisioned from a guy worth more than pretty much every major league baseball owner put together at this point and from someone who's been working in major league front offices since the 1980s but it's also probably a good sign or probably a suggestion that one the guy with the money is that like i think i, com- I compared him to mark cuban last week and i feel like that still holds it's just the the mark cuban vibe of someone who has a lot of money but doesn't really know how to use it and the fact that maybe the fact that Sandy Alderson has been in, has been working in front offices for 40 years is a sign that it's time to find someone new because he has been around for a very, very long time. And even beyond the changes that baseball has undergone as a sport, certainly the the conduct and the atmosphere and the type of front office that existed back in his heydays should at least be a, like a total huge like it should not be the same. You know, because, again, that's how you end up with guys like Porter and Scott in charge, because the things that they do in their private lives that are just flat out bad, they get papered over because that's how it has been for the longest time. I mean, I think just to to do a mini sport crossover the way I think the way you've seen with how the NHL has has broken down in terms of uh, older front office types and kind of legacy executives and, and, and front office types, the way that they're now getting pushed out or. The kind of essentially cover up that's been happening with a lot of these guys who, have, you know, the old boys club that has existed in hockey and its front offices and the way that that is to at least to me being 
in the way that the NHL always does stuff, kind of haphazardly dismantled. Uh, I, obviously, a lot of that has to do with the Blackhawks scandal uh, around what happened there, but I, I think it does it does at least suggest that the the old school guys who have been in charge, whilst Alderson included, probably should not be anymore. Because again, if this is the result that his process creates, what exactly is he there for? Because this this is not how this should have ended for the Mets. This is not at all how this should be going. A team with this much money, with this much talent, with the market they're in, should not end up hiring a hiring a corporate lawyer from a white shoe mergers and acquisitions law firm to run their to run their baseball operations. That's nonsense, just flat out. He would make a lot more sense if he was like a someone you just brought in as like an assistant or someone you just added sure, to an I, already I think, established front office yeah, where I it's think, like one I of those that, fake roles where it's just he's just another body in the room where it's sure, like he's he, a voice yeah. mm-hmm. as, as if if Adam Cromie had come to Sandy Alderson and said, hey, I'm interested in getting back into baseball. And Alderson had said, hey, that's great. Let's give you an assistant role mm-hmm. and we'll figure out what you can bring to the table from there. No one has any problem with that. Like why not? That that makes perfect sense. Let's see what the guys let's see what the guys capable of in a mm-hmm. smaller role and give them some time to get used to baseball in in the year twenty twenty one slash twenty twenty two and go from there. This is not someone you give. And the guys the other thing of it is it's not someone you give power to, but it's also very clear that he's not gonna have any power. That this is essentially an assistant GM job. That Sandy Alderson is the general manager, and that I guess Chromie is just there, hopefully to be the successor, maybe. That's kind of the other part of this. It's like, what, what is the plan here now? Are you really going to give authorization and decision-making powers to to a guy who who's who has not been working in baseball these last few years? How is it going to? How is that authority going to be split between Alderson and Cromie? Who's actually making those choices? Because if it's Alderson, that's kind of the other argument: is why is he still making these choices? None of the choices he made seem to be good ones, or very few of them. His hit rate is not particularly as not was not particularly good last year, and the way that the team just seemed to kind of fall apart all over the place really does not suggest that he should still be in a leadership role so yeah it 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 really does just feel like this is just that he that adam cromie if he does get hired is being hired less for what he brings to the table and more because of the fact that he is available and that that is obviously that is just no way to run a baseball team but i mean i guess what what is this i mean the the other funny thing about it just the 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 news that you know that this time the Mets were having their candidates vetted not just by Corn Ferry, the, mm-hmm. the official vetting, you know, whatever of, of that Major League Baseball always turns to in these regards, but two other agencies. I find it funny that Corn Ferry is even involved because I mean Ben Charrington already has a job. What do they even have to recommend at this point? Like, well, didn't they GM, get fired a couple of years ago by Major League Baseball? Corn well, Corn Ferry and Major Corn Ferry was the you know the go-to consulting firm for these kinds of hires. Until it turned out, turned out, Eric, mm-hmm. that pretty much all they were doing was just recommending people out of the Mark Shapiro executive tree, mm-hmm. which is just a bunch of white dudes who went to Ivy schools. So I think there was a concerted effort no longer to, or at least not to use, not for Corn Ferry not to be so publicly and repeatedly involved with these kinds of searches, because obviously MLB wants to avoid the you know, the implication that they are not a diverse workforce and that they're not committed to diversity, even though they're, I mean, not at the executive level, they're not, at least not a team executive level. But yeah, but even just the fact that they're present just suggests that this is just the kind of, I don't know, it it just, what, what is, even beyond whoever the Mets hire, what is the direction that this franchise wants to go? 
Well, you know, and and you, what do you, what does Adam Cromie tell you about the direction? Because he's not bringing anything inherent to himself that suggests that the Mets are going to go one way or the other. It just seems like he's being hired because he's available, and not because he's he has a plan for what to do as general manager. And certainly because it's not, like I said, it's not at all clear who actually is in charge and who is going to be making the decisions. Although, I guess the the implication here is that Sandy Alderson will continue making the decisions, which. Yeah, I uh, I wish I could. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting too, John? When I think about this stuff, where it's like um, when we talked about Alderson as like the the bridge guy in a front office, where it's like he he knows he knows what's going on, he knows how to handle things. I've always wondered about like that just um, that line of thinking um, that you need somebody in there uh, to 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 navigate the waters to help new ownership cross over into the new like Vivek Ranadive I remember that was like a thing when he took over the Kings and like this was something that we just heard it's like this conventional wisdom that you need some older mind in the room to to run things until you're ready to pass it off but I've never really understood if that's an actual thing like okay explain to me why the 50 year old or the 43 year old whiz GM can't take care of this why he can't do the job without someone who is his elder helping him run through things i've never understood like i want them to walk me through what sandy does that a assistant gm for the rays can't walk in and immediately do nothing in particular i mean i Mm -hmm. think the the benefit or the thing that alderson brought with his hiring was his his network of connections and his expertise and experience he just knows a shit ton of people and he he knows at least on a on a on a basic level like because i mean this is the thing but i just feel like a, baseball especially the front office guys they already are all a network they already all are know are, each other like i i think what steve cohen wanted and i can't say for sure because i've you know we i have not talked to steve cohen about why sandy alderson was hired beyond i assume the fact that he was again available and already knew the franchise and i think that that counts for something too is he knew the franchise um he has connections with people who were you know who presumably uh stuck around post will ponds he's connected with everyone in the in baseball everyone in the sport you know I can understand the appeal of hiring an old hand to help manage that process, and especially, and as, as I think was the case in hiring Porter and Scott, in finding young, in finding a younger group of guys who will be the front office of the future, and in just being able to kind of shepherd that process through. But it, I mean, it's funny you bring up uh, Randy because I mean, he hired, he went pretty much the direct opposite. He hired Vlade Divac, mm-hmm. who never run anything, and the results were predictably bad. Right. But I think part of that too is that Randy was and i believe i don't follow the nba particularly closely but i don't think i can't imagine things have changed that much with the kings that he's just an inveterate meddler who just mm. thinks he knows better than everybody else because he is worth however many billions of dollars Vivek randiv is worth and i have to imagine that steve cohen is probably not dissimilar that he probably also feels that he knows i mean you, you, based on the way he tweeted you, you get the sense he clearly thinks he knows a lot about baseball when he very clearly does not yeah, I. That's got to be weird, though. That's probably why I would be a bad owner. Is because I would. It would be really hard for me to restrain myself in a in a room if I'm like just sitting there uh, across from Brian Cashman. And uh, yeah, Brian Cashman works for me in this analogy. And um, I'm just like, no, I don't think so. I don't. I don't trust you on this one. I'm. Well, no, I'm going to go thing. here. Like the, the common the common thread amongst the worst franchises in the sport are they have the worst, most meddlesome owners. Mm-hmm. And you see that too. I mean, you see that in other sports. I mean, as we're seeing with the Suns with with Robert Sarver. That mm-hmm. I mean, leaving aside as as much as you can the fact that he is an, a disgusting pig of a human being, like 
he very clearly is someone who tries to direct the future of the franchise despite the fact he knows about, as much about basketball as an actual basketball does. Mm. Like, these people are under the impression that because they have a lot of money that in 90% of cases was given to them by a family member that they are suddenly smarter than everyone on earth. And yeah, I, I, under, I can understand that idea that if you are that person, you do want a medal because you think you're a genius. But mm-hmm. truthfully, the best thing an owner can do is just shut the hell up the entire time and just <laughs> sign checks. That's why I mean and it's I just hard to why... do. That's why like the best ones now are you the ones who are out of sight, out of mind. Like the the Braves owners, for as bad as they are, they're away in Colorado. They're not doing anything. They're just away minding their own business. They they tell X and like is what the the limitations are and stuff like that. But yeah. outside of that, they're not making appearances. They don't really care what's going on. Uh, or in a similar vein, I think the way Mike Illich ran things toward the end of his life right. as a Tigers owner gets brought up a lot as the kind of quintessential quote unquote good owner. Because all he cared about was winning, and he basically just told Alavila and, and everyone else in charge, here is all the money you want, just build me a winner. That's mm-hmm. all I care about. Like, I, I'm sure that he had his plenty plenty of things to say about what the Tigers were doing, because as I imagine is the case with every franchise, ownership needs to sign off on everything, and they're the final call. But certainly it feels like... And I, and I think this is the other thing where I, I would love to know, and... It, and what the actual you know division of decision making is here in terms of the search process between Cohen and and Alderson, but I, I also would be curious to know how much Sandy or how much Steve Cohen is involved in this process in terms of trying to find someone and whether or not his presence is. I mean, it's it's unlikely that it's a positive because otherwise, why would like two or three dozen people have rejected them already? It, it's pretty easy to imagine that his process isn't additional negative in this either through whatever meddling is doing or just the fact that he exists and has already shown in his one year of ownership that he is a a meddlesome idiot who tends to run his mouth you know that this is something where ideally you would have someone in that front office and ideally it would be someone like sandy alderson to take cohen aside and be like i appreciate that you love the mets i appreciate you care about the team shut the fuck up shut up stop talking stop saying stop tweeting stop like just let me do my job and things will get better but yeah, I don't, I don't. I would love to know how those two work together. I would love to know how the Mets front office works in general. It sounds like just a an absolute mess. So, yeah, I I, I can't. I both can and cannot believe that this is where the Mets are ending up because it's all it's so very Mets. But it just feels like this franchise has had so many off ramps to take to get out of this place where we do keep referring to them this way, and they just won't do it because they just the wrong people keep getting put in charge. And there doesn't seem to be any actual, like I said, adult in the room to be able to go, what the hell are we all doing? You know, what what is the point of all of this? Yeah, well, that leads us to some actual on-field questions surrounding uh, what's going on in Flushing. Because Carlos, or uh, Carlos, I was going to say Carlos, he's next on the list, but we'll get to him in a second. Um, Michael Conforto rejected the Mets qualifying offer. And then there are questions about Noah Syndergaard. Um, so let's combine these, John, because sure. um, they said, like, so John Heyman tweeted this out uh, this afternoon. I don't know if you saw this, but he said, quote, some rivals believe Mets took a chance giving 18.4 million qualifying offer to Noah Syndergaard. Their calls to give one to Stroman uh, last year turned out correct. Um, they obviously need starters and it's a plus they're willing to spend. But after two innings over two years, which I had to double check because I didn't even like it, that seemed preposterous yep. to me. Accurate. And, and it is accurate and it's it's really sad and it's just kind of bonkers. But he said 18.4 million seems high. Um, 
I get the concern, but this is more of a concern if you're... I mean, honestly, if you're the Braves, where, like, you can't afford to get nothing out of Charlie Morton. It's a concern if you're... I was going to say the Pirates, but the Pirates mm. have so little guaranteed money that $18 million on one dude doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think it's more of a concern for teams that, for whatever reasons, be it self-chosen, be it you know self-inflicted or otherwise, are kind of hard-capped in terms of what they can spend. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they um, can't whiff on those kind of signings. Like, those are few and far between so even if it's a one year like you can't you can't miss on that one year 18.4 million like yeah, at that think, spot the Mets can and I think it it makes sense I think that in the very especially in the case of Syndergaard because he is coming off Tommy John surgery that he does present and I think the same thing can be said of Justin Verlander with the Astros although I think he's he's very unlikely to take that deal I think he's gonna I think he can find someone who can give him a multi-year deal or at least one year for maybe something better I don't know we'll see but definitely that you're, you know, in picking the, in signing the guy and giving $18 million to someone coming off Tommy John surgery, knowing that, um, that the first year back is going to be a little shaky, you know, the, is that really the best allocation of those resources? But I mean, I think for the Mets, like what, what else are you going to do there? Right. Like what, what is a better use of $18 million in terms of a salary than Noah Syndergaard if Noah Syndergaard comes back healthy? That, that to me is just like, what, what else are the Mets going to spend that on? In terms of pitching, they need pitching. Mm-hmm. Are, are you know are they going to be players at the top of the pitching free agent market? I guess the question is, I mean, we'll we'll see how it all shakes out in terms of who goes where and and who wants what. But yeah, I I have a hard time just seeing the extension of a qualifying offer to Syndergaard as being a mistake unless it turns out he is not as healthy or as you know finished with his rehab as the Mets believe him to be, or at least as we seem to suggest. I mean. The interesting thing about the way he finished the season is he threw that one solitary inning for the Mets after kind of the on and off rehab that kept getting stopped and started during during the summer and that he basically didn't throw any breaking balls because the Mets didn't feel fully comfortable with him doing that on his surgically repaired elbow yet. That would suggest that maybe that's not a guy you want to give $18 million a year to mm. if that's the case. But at the same time, I think there's obviously going to be a market for Syndergaard. Um, I, I don't think that this it's going to be the same market you would get for a guy like Blake Trinan, for example, where, you know, one year and $10 million gets it done. I, I don't think that would be the case. And even if, you know, Syndergaard does sign for something like, let's say, 339 somewhere or, or 345, wouldn't you rather just pay the $18 million for one year and if it doesn't work out, so be it, than be on the hook for two more years at $15 million per? Like, to save a few million dollars at the expense of a longer deal for a riskier investment... That doesn't really make any sense. I feel like this is the safest path the Mets can the Mets can choose, if they you know unless they just purely don't want Syndergaard back. And if they didn't, well then they should have offered him the qualifying offer. The fact that they did would suggest that they are, that they would be at least comfortable with him coming back. It's weird to see that Heyman tweet um, because, as is the case with with all you know all the all the kind of newsbreaker tweets, it's that fun game of who is who is their source here and what are they mm-hmm. you know who you know. Whose work are they doing by 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 saying this? But I, I just I have a hard time seeing how eighteen million dollars for either Syndergaard or Conforto at this point would be a mistake. You know the the real risk with any free agent is the is the length, not so much the the AAV. Any team can afford anything in a given year. Mm-hmm. It's it's the years that'll end up killing you if you make that bad decision. And I guess that's the thing. If if Syndergaard comes back next year and doesn't look right or or, or you know pitches poorly or gets hurt again, okay, fine. Those $18 million, I mean, what are you going to get for $18 million? A reliever and a backup infielder, probably. 
You know, it, that that's 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 change for most. That is pocket change for most teams, and it should be pocket change for Steve Cohen and the Mets. So I don't really understand the idea of, of Mets fans or anyone involved with the Mets being worried that Syndergaard says yes. I mean, isn't that what you want? You get a year to evaluate him to see if he's any to see if he's come back healthy to see if his elbows responded, and if it hasn't, okay, you've lost eighteen million dollars, but you're also not on the hook for anything more. He's done. You let him go, and wherever he goes from there, he goes from there. Um, I guess I mean the surprise me qualifying offer wise for the Mets isn't so much that they made one to Syndergaard, but that Conforto has decided he's just not going to bother. Uh, that he's not going to accept it and he's going to try to get a multi-year deal despite the presence of the qualifying offer and the draft pick that's going to impact his value. Especially coming off the year he had where he was you know, peripherally fine, but the the, su- the superficial number, numbers weren't particularly good. And we're talking about someone, too, who defensively is not has not been very good of late. You know, the, it's, it's a real gamble on himself, I feel like, although he is a very good corner outfielder and I think any team would be very smart to sign him. But, yeah, when it comes to Syndergaard, though, I, I don't particularly... I don't get whatever anxiety that creates among Mets fans you know that that 18 million dollars if he accepts it is not going to be the difference I don't think between a World Series or not you know unless the the other side of that is if the Mets say well Noah Syndergaard accepted the qualifying offer so not only do we have this much less money to work with but also now we're not going to target other pitchers because well we already have now a full rotation theoretically but that's not that's not Noah Syndergaard's fault so to speak that's the Mets being cheap if that's what it comes to you know, they can easily afford to add more if Syndergaard decides to come back. Yeah, and um, let me check my notes here. Yeah, he's worth $14 billion. I'm not concerned with uh, Cohen's uh, pocketbook taking taking a little bit of a hit no, uh, for and, one and, year. No, and no one should be because ultimately it's like if you do bring Noah Syndergaard back, it's because you've decided he's worth it. And a healthy Noah Syndergaard is very good. You know, mm-hmm. if if he does come back healthy, like it's but not we like should also throw out the caveat ball. of just like he's pitched two innings in two years, which is sure. bonkers. But and I, I understand fans who are like, well, if you want to take the cynical approach to this, which is fair considering the Mats situation and the Harvey situation, you can just go up and down the list, and um, they're just like, yeah, we, we we lucked out with Stroman, but by and large, or the 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 opportunity of us hitting on these two back to back like this are probably pretty low and that we do have the money. So let's use that on someone else. But when you look at this uh, free agent class of starting arms, I don't really know where else you're going. And also the way I would frame it to them is just that like, what if you just picked up this qualifying offer might be a little bit high, but then you just, you like you sign someone else around that same number because you're Steve Cohen and you're the richest owner in baseball. What if you just did both? That's the thing. You can afford to do both. Right. Again, the, the difference between a good and bad Mets season is not going to be they spent $18 million on Noah Syndergaard. It's going to mm-hmm. be they didn't spend X amount of money on whatever it actually was they needed or, you know, they or they made a bad decision somewhere else. You know, I, I really, really doubt that Noah Syndergaard is going to be the difference here. And it's for, I think for the Mets to pretend that this is some kind of like major cost, you know, that they're incurring if, if Syndergaard does return is just silly. You know, it's no, it's not. It's. If Noah Syndergaard were healthy and had been going through the normal, you know, arbitration process or whatnot, he probably would have made close to $18 million last year. I mean, what did he make last year for that matter? Like, this is not someone who made like $5 million next year. Now he's in line for a, a, you know, to make triple that, almost four times that, you know, despite not pitch, like you said, despite only pitching two innings in the last two years, you know, he he has still earned a salary and still, you know, been getting an increasing salary because that's arbitration. He made $9.7 million last year. 
you know as, as like this is how the this is how baseball's financial system is supposed to work he is supposed to get paid more the longer he goes on like this is not this is not some incredible egregious inflation this is you know if if Syndergaard had been healthy last year he probably makes somewhere closer to 12 or 15 million mm-hmm. so in that in that vein 18 million is the the normal raise you would have expected I, again, I, I just I don't see how that is a problem for the Mets unless they use it as an excuse to cheap out on other stuff, which we will see. But uh, it's the Mets, and this is just what they do. Well, let's move on from the Mets because we have happier teams to discuss. I have them in front of me. Are you ready? White yes. Sox, Angels, and the Orioles. John Taylor, yeah, much happier. Yeah, well, much the White happier. Sox are happy at least. Well, I wanted to ask you. You tweeted about this a little bit, but what do you make of the Carlos Rodon and? Uh, White Sox latest development I mean I, I I can understand it on the level that Rodon is someone who you know has had a, a long series of, of injuries in particular arm injuries and who even over the course of last year he started very strong and then very clearly kind of ran out of steam toward the end and was having some velocity fluctuation having some more injury issues I can understand that the the White Sox are not particularly intrigued in the idea of uh giving him a long-term deal given how up and down he has been in his career at the same time and, and this is what i tweeted that i, I found it's like this is what they've been wanting out of carlos Rodon. the season he just had is what they've been wanting ever since they drafted him which was now a billion years ago so i just find it strange that they would say okay we finally got the year we wanted out of this guy we finally know he can do it no more thank you and not even because they have some super prospect in the waiting you know to take that space the the rotation next year is going to be you know the the guys who are there already uh, Lance Lynn, Dylan Cease, uh, Lucas Giolito, and Dallas Keuchel. Keuchel. who by the way was not good last year and is getting older. That's what I was going to mention. Like it, gonna... the alternative to this is the Keuchel situation, and you can't afford to lose Rondon and then take another swing at, like a Keuchel type and then fail there as well. Um, yeah, and, and that's kind of the thing. It's like you're now you're banking that not only is Dallas Keuchel. Not only are you banking that Dallas Keigel can be better than he was last year when there's no real reason to believe that given that he's getting right. older, is not a hard thrower, is a guy who relies pretty much entirely on weak contact at this point, and that is just the, the shakiest of ground to build on, but also that your fifth starter right now is Michael Kopech. And I love Kopech. He has fantastic stuff. He has a uh, you know a great pedigree. He's been an awesome prospect for a long time. He very clearly you know he did some good work out of the bullpen last year, but this is someone who has not thrown more than he, he his innings he, he topped out at 69 and a third innings last year he has not pitched he did not pitch in 2020 because of because he opted out for the pandemic he did not pitch in 2019 because he blew out his elbow he only threw about 140 innings in 2018 this is not someone who has a lot of you know his his career high in innings total is 140 which was set what will be now four years ago, four years and a replaced elbow ligament ago. You know, that, that does not really feel like the safest bet. Like, I know Rodon is a risky investment going forward and maybe one of the riskiest starting pitcher investments going forward because of his injury history. But it's, again, you, you are going to be relying on Dylan Cease, Dallas Keuchel, and Michael Kopech to eat a lot of innings, assuming you don't pick up some rotation depth. And the kind of the other thing is, if you're not going to invest in Rodon, well, then who are you going to go pick up? Mm-hmm. Rodon is not someone who's going to go out into the market and get an eight-year, $250 million deal or whatever. This isn't something like where 
you know, the, the, with like the Dodgers letting, say, Max Scherzer walk or playing Kershaw walks or whatever, where it's like, OK, well, because he's just going to get a lot of money from someone, although like, the, less about the money, less about the years, more about the money with a guy like Scherzer. But this is a, this is a starting pitcher who probably is not going to make that much on the open market anyway. You know, so who are you if if this is too rich for your blood, so to speak, or if this is too risky for you, then who are you going to go after? You know, the, the White Sox aren't going to sign Kevin Gaussman. You know, that, that that's not something they if, if they're really going to target. OK, we want more like mid to back rotation guys. Who is that? You know, Eduardo Rodriguez. Mm. Do you do you pass on Rodon, but then take a bigger gamble on, on Noah Syndergaard? Like what is and, and we'll, we'll obviously have to see how it plays out, but it's like what is the what is the decision making path there in terms of how are you going to help compensate for those not just the innings you're losing, but also the upside that he brings, you know? The top starting pitcher on the market is arguably Scherzer or or Kershaw. Or maybe Gaussman or, or I guess Robbie Ray too. But they're not gonna be playing at that they're not gonna be um looking at guys at that end of the market if they've already decided Rodone is someone that they're not interested in either. So is yeah. it Rodriguez? Is it Syndergaard? Is it? I mean, who else is there really? Is it is it a one year deal for Clayton Kershaw if you can somehow convince him to leave, both to leave Los Angeles and not go to Texas? Is it is it a gamble on Justin? That's the thing. Every pitcher who you would rank in any free agents in any free agent ranking below Rodone is just as big a risk, if mm-hmm. not more so. So it's like what what exactly is the is the goal there? Are you really, truly comfortable just saying our four and five starters in going into the season are Dallas Keuchel and Michael Kopech when you can easily do better by just saying, okay, Carlos Rodon, here is three years and $54 million or whatever. Because again, like as with any team, the White Sox can afford that. John, here's what I would do if I was... problem for them. If I were the White Sox, I would simply recreate what the Giants did in 2021. I would simply redo the whole thing, get your own... Teoscop, I'm never gonna be able to say his name quickly. Um, De, uh, can you go ahead and do this? Who, who are you talking about? De Scalfani, whatever. I, do you see what I'm doing? Oh, Anthony, De, Anthony De Scalfani. De Scalfani. Okay. De Scalfani. I just, I just get around it by calling him Tony Disco. Okay, that works. I'm gonna say Tony Disco, Kevin Gaussman. Um, you go up and down I mean, the ladder. Yeah, you can. You, you can hire make, Andrew Bailey. You, you do everything that uh, they I mean, did. Yeah, it's you, that simple. You can, you can make the argument that maybe you just aim for that lower end of the market with guys like Tony Disco or, you know, you see what John Gray is interested in getting or you know, maybe or maybe a guy like Steven Matz. But it's mm. really hard to argue that the White Sox are better if they do that. Yeah. You know, because the downside for those guys, it feels I mean, maybe maybe Rodon has a similar downside because of the injury stuff. But again, these aren't these are guys who are also coming with their own problems like, you know, uh, John Gray is certainly not a, a you know the the top end of the market. Steven Matz is is more of a mid rotation starter than than anything else. Or and then you're talking about uh, beyond that guys like like Disclafani or, or Corey Kluber, or Alex Cobb or Kwang Young Kim, who have also had serious injury problems and who have not been particularly productive of late either. Who Kluber mm-hmm. side. So yeah, I, I I don't I guess that's what makes the the Rodone decision from even that harder to understand is that the nominal replacement is either a dude who hasn't been a starter in four years and who has not thrown more than 70 innings per season in that span and who has missed two of, who missed two of those seasons entirely mm-hmm. or a dude in his late 30s who just is very clearly at the you know in on the last gasps of his career <laughs> i don't really see how that helps the white Sox in any way instead of just sucking up and going eh, we'll just bring back we'll bring back the guy who not only wants to be here 
but also is comfortable here and who we know and who we know what he's capable of and all that fun stuff. Like, right. It, it, that just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, given what the other options are. Well, speaking of limited options, uh, the Angels hope to significantly improve their rotation. John Taylor, this offseason. Okay, that's that's really easy. Just go sign Max Scherzer. Done. Do you think they'll do it? No, no, they're not. They're not going to do that. No, they're they're looking. I mean, I'm just looking at the the uh, Fangraphs uh, top fifty list and. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the player who I think would be kind of the the top of what the Angels would probably do rotation wise. I think it's Kevin Gaussman, mm-hmm. which fine if if you sign Kevin Gaussman, that's not a bad decision. But I, I I guess more to the point is that they are not going to be going after the guys who are guaranteed better. Although you can, it is fair to wonder, especially given the way he ended his season, what Scherzer kind of has left at this, not left, but you know, whether he is fully healthy and what the the last few years of his career are going to look like. But yeah, it, it is going to be guys more, I think in that Kevin Gaussman, maybe Rodon, uh, maybe, you know, maybe someone like, I don't think Verlander, but, um, but I think what's going to end up happening for the Angels is because they're not one of those contenders that can just give a high AAV short uh, short year deal to a guy like Scherzer or Kershaw or Verlander, who is all of these guys are going to either want to go to contenders or I think in Kershaw's case, the choice will be go to its contender or go home to Texas. You know, you're going to have to be playing in that in that tier of free agency where guys like Rodon and Gaussman exist where yes they are you've seen what they're capable of at their peak and it's very very good but the floor is also kind of scary does that make the Angels better I mean yeah it's certainly not a bad decision to add better players but at the same time like there is not really a guy I think available in free agency who substantially makes them better again unless they decide that they do want to try to make a play for someone like Scherzer or Kershaw you know because granted like you you look at their depth chart right now rotation wise and what it contains beyond Shohei Otani who you know obviously is fantastic but is I don't know how much you can count on him and it's really bad it's Patrick Sandoval and Jose Suarez and Jaime Berea and Reed Detmers and Sandoval was very good last year when he was healthy Certainly, I think that's a guy the Angels should invest in and should, you know, carve out a rotation spot for. But I guess that's the other side of this. It's really not hard for the Angels to do better in their rotation because their rotation is terrible. But regardless, if they're not going to go after those guys at the top end of the market, they're going to end up in a situation where they do have to shell out money for guys who are going to be on the riskier side. And part of, I think, the issue there, too, is that the Angels have never shown, or at least not shown at all in the last decade, if not longer, any real ability either to keep pitchers healthy or to continue their development which i think is the other really big problem here is that the angels kind of have that or that like pre-tanking orioles vibe of everyone who comes here gets worse and it doesn't really seem like we know what we're doing and granted like i think that can change under perry manassian uh, if only because he's coming from a team in atlanta or has come from a team in atlanta that has you know been done very well in pitching development and you'd have to imagine that the front office he's built around himself probably includes some of those, maybe some ex-Atlanta folks, or at least is a different vision and uh, execution than the Billy Epler era. But at the same time, it's not, it's kind of funny to me. It, this is not really the offseason, I think, where you can find a starting pitcher who substantially makes your team better unless you're willing to, again, do those high AAV short year deals for a guy like uh, Scherzer or Kershaw. Otherwise, it's kind of what free agency usually is pitching-wise, which is a, a lot of question marks. I mean, I think to me the Angels, 
I, I understand why it didn't happen, but you know, the, the time for that investment was Garrett Cole. You know, it, it, it was it was something like that. This is not really the off season to try to do that. But I guess, like I said, the good news for the Angels is it will take very little effort to improve on their already existing pitching. It's just going to be a question of who do they target and whenever they sign, whoever they sign, how many years is that pitcher going to lose to an arm injury? Because that, that just feels inevitable at this point with them. That I don't know what it is they do during their during their um, during their pre during their pre signing physicals that they just if they just pull a, a casino and they just lay a guy's hand out on the table and just smash it with a hammer or something. But everyone who goes there gets worse. So I guess that's the other part of it. It's like, I, it's almost like who cares? The angels aren't good at this. They're not going to be good because they're just not smart. It seems like I'll, I'll give Perry Manassian the, the benefit of the doubt that he, you know, he is presumably trying something different or, or trying at the very least. But yeah, th- this is not, this is not a great market. I think for the kind of impact pitcher, the angels kind of sort of need, you know, it, I just I just I to me, it just seems like I can almost guarantee that they're going to be the team that signs like Steven Matz or or like Kwang Young Kim. I, I think it's probably going to be more of a quantity than quality thing, you know, that maybe they do just sign a combo of like Kim and DiSclafani and or maybe they do go like they splurge on Rodon and that they balance that out with, um, you know, a guy a, a, again, a guy like DiSclafani or maybe they bring Alex Cobb back or something. But it's just kind of hard to imagine how they substantially upgrade their pitching as is. Well, it's hard to imagine how they substantially upgrade the top of their rotation as is. It's not hard to imagine them improving their rotation overall because really their their problem more than anything, well, their their problem is twofold. It's quantity and quality. They're missing both. And unfortunately for them, I think the they'll have a much easier time finding quantity than they will quality in this market. Or at least uh, reliable, guaranteed quality. And we can't discount the impact of Andrew Haney going off the board early here. <laughs> I, I, I really found it funny that he is the first guy to sign because every team saw what Robbie Ray did last year. And instead of just being like, <laughs> okay, well, then let's just go get Robbie Ray. They were like, okay, let's find the next Robbie Ray. <laughs> Andrew Haney, really? I mean, I, he's not a bad signing. No, do you know where he should have gone? It's what, what are these guys doing? Um, Texas has the, the elixir of life down there. <laughs> Like, go there. Yeah, That's where you go for rehab when, is when you go do, to starting pitching Texas, rehab. When we do our Texas offseason preview, we've each got to pick the one completely broken bad veteran mm-hmm. who may sign and invariably turn into a Cy Young candidate. I'm going to stake out Michael Pineda right now. Ooh, I like that one. Um, that feels like a really three-year, $25 million deal from Texas where he somehow turns into like a 140 ERA plus pitcher next season. I could see it. Um, or like you say, Kikuchi, like there's someone along kind of the, that end of the spectrum. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I get why the Dodgers signed Haney. It's I think it's a smart place for him to go. Obviously, that is one of obviously the smartest teams in baseball. And he has a repertoire and uh, an approach that I think fits what they are trying to do generally. But yeah, I, I, do, I do just find it funny that teams would much rather sign the cheap guy who might be, a you know, the, the cheap lottery ticket than just going for the guy in Robbie Ray who's shown that. And because because a guy like Ray feels like this that wasn't a fluke like that felt like a legitimate change in approach that led to a legitimately improved result, but it's just funny they'd rather be like no nah, we can we can we can punt that we can kick that can down the road Let, let's focus in on the guy who had an ERA at five last year and who gives up like six home runs every nine innings. Hmm. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, John, we're starting our uh, season re- review series with uh, the worst team in baseball. As always. Um, 
because we hit the other stuff first because we don't really have a whole lot we have to like really nail down here this is not going to be a very complicated off season for the baltimore orioles but let's do our season in review for baltimore john what went right for the baltimore orioles this season cedric mullins okay that's a Okay, there's more than that. Cedric Mullins went right. Ryan Mountcastle. Trey Mancini came came back. Ryan Mountcastle showed he can at least hit for power. And John Means came back and looked pretty good. Oh, and Adley Rutschman didn't die. (laughs) That's really about it. Like, uh, Dan Samborski made this point for us at Fangraphs. Uh, He's been doing this series that is, I believe, wrapping up shortly with the Annalise where he's just kind of gone through each division and kind of just done the, okay, you know, what went right last year, what needs to go, what needs to happen next year. And he made the point, I think it's a very good one, that probably no team was hurt as badly by the lost, by both the shortened 2020 season and the lost minor league season as the Orioles, because everything that happens on the field in terms of wins and losses for them does not matter. All that matters is just the development and production of the young players, and they lost an entire year's worth of development for, of, for their farm system, which is really, really bad. On top of that, they didn't really get to see last year much out of anyone in terms of deciding, okay, who who really can stick going forward. And while they definitely got the idea, okay, Mullins is a guy who's going to be part of this going forward because he is young and cost-controlled and very good. John Means is young-ish and, you know, still has uh, three years of service time left. Mancini is his own separate thing. I know we've, we've disagreed on whether or not he's a guy that the Orioles keep. I think that the, the sheer PR hit of losing him would be so bad that the team just has to suck it up and keep him. Wait, no, I think we but, agree. We've agreed on Mancini. Oh, I've yeah, also, okay. I, I no, I've also posited that they should keep him. And it's like that. Uh, it's the rebelling against you have to get rid of veteran every veteran ever because yeah. you're rebuilding. It's like well, no, it's okay to have of, some good good stories. But that's kind of the other the back half to this is not only the Orioles lose a year of development, but also because they are already so deep into that tank that most, if not all, of the useful veterans are gone. They don't really have anything they can add to that system either. I mean, at the trade deadline, the one made they move, the one move they made, sorry, was dealing with Freddie Galvis, and that obviously is not something that's going to return the kind of prospect who makes any kind of difference really going forward. But although I say that, and then you know the the obvious counter is <laughs> why the Padres got Fernando Tatis Jr. for literally James Shields. So you never know. But at the same time, like this is not a team that has really changed or done anything in the last two years in that regard that has not really moved forward except like i said in in terms of mullins in terms of means returning in terms of mancini returning and in terms of adley rutschman continuing to exist and be the best catcher in 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 the minors so it's funny like we we probably could have taken the off season the season review off season preview we did last year for baltimore run it exactly the same change a few names and it probably would it probably would still apply like this is a team that just does not have anything going on at the major league level beyond a few guys where no one really no one aside from Mullins really showed that they're part of a, a part of this team going forward where most of the production most of the good results in the minor leagues belong to Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez I mean D.L. Hall suffered an elbow injury Hessen Kierstad uh, had his season more or less ruined by myocarditis uh, you know they're there are good names in this system, but they're not really, they have not really produced yet. Like, there's a lot of potential still for Baltimore, but it has, really has not translated into results at any level with the exception of a handful of guys. And so the question now becomes, how much longer is this rebuild going to go? Like, what happens when you just, when the rebuild doesn't work? Because we are approaching that point, I think, with Baltimore. You know, they've been in this position for three or so years now. 
at some point you got to start showing results beyond you know the the occasional Cedric Mullins or beyond whatever Rutschman does when he gets up or Grayson Rodriguez does when he gets called up. They have to start graduating and not just creating prospects but developing and graduating them, and that they really have not done in the last few years. Mullin and Mullins only. Mullins' development, for the most part, seems like it was impacted mostly by his decision to stop switch hitting. That seems to have been the thing that has unlocked his his actual, you know, real offensive ability. But then you look at guys like Anthony Hayes, or sorry, Anthony Hayes at Austin Hayes, or Anthony Santander, or you know, the the pitchers they have like Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer and Zach Lother, who have just not produced at the major league level yet. And granted, those guys are uh, young and they still have you know some some time to grow, but not all that many of them do like or, or a guy like dj stewart for example who just cannot hit at the major league level like you need to start hitting on more of those guys more often and they don't have to become you know five war type players like mullins was but you just need a few of them to crack two to three war and be kind of steady regulars i mean you, you look at the orioles you look at the orioles roster from last year they had a grand total of four or five players who were two who were worth two or more wins above replacement it's not good that's not good. And like, granted, uh, one of them was Mullins, one of them was Means, and those are again, those are two guys who are going to be around for a good while. One of them is Hayes, but a lot of that was defensive value. And the remaining two were Cole Sulcer, who is 31 years old and a reliever, and Ramon Urias, who is 29 or 27 and a glove for a shortstop. They have not unearthed the pieces that they need yet to be anything more than like a 75 win team. This rebuild has basically turned them into the current day Royals, mm. except the Royals probably have a brighter future right now. Like, I don't want to say that. This well, the is thing going about the backwards. Royals that we should mention, though, if we're going to compare them to the Royals and this, the uh, the unfortunate part of the Orioles in general is just the division that they play in. Like the Royals playing in the AL Central will always give them the leg up there a little bit. Yeah, the I mean, Orioles we, are just long, already at a disadvantage. As, yeah, the thing. For, for as long as the Royals try, we can call them a dark horse playoff contender right. because their division is bad. The Orioles, even if they went out and spent like $150 million this offseason, are still probably at best the fourth best team in the in the AL East. Mm-hmm. They're in a really bad division, and that sucks for them. But they've made it so much worse for themselves by choosing this path where they are intent, not only intentionally awful, but also have no guarantee that this is going to get better. They, they, they are not necessarily going backwards, I think, but they're not really going forwards either. They're just kind of treading water at this point. And I understand that is, to a certain degree, kind of the point for some of these tanking teams is you just tread water for a few years while the young guys develop. But if you're not developing the young guys, and if when they're getting to the majors they're not really producing at the level you need them to, then there's then there's been effectively no point to this. You know, it, it feels like to a certain point the Orioles would be better off if this were the NBA, where you know all you need is three or four really good guys and you're in a much better position than you were two or three years ago. You know, you need way more to hit on that, or you need way more hits to make a to make a to take a tanking team into the realm of something of contention and i think also and obviously the the other side of this for the orioles is they're not going to do anything this offseason to make themselves any better mm-hmm. you know this is not a team that's going to try to do anything this offseason their their major free agents last year were wade leblanc and 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 matt harvey and i don't really think there's any reason to assume they're going to sign players better than that this offseason they're going to do the thing that they're going to do the thing that they've been doing for for the last few years now which is just pad out the end of the roster with some cheap veterans and just go from there. You know, this is not a team that's going to try to get better. So they're just going to keep treading this in the same pool next year. I mean, 
that's kind of the other thing. Like when I joke about like we could have just used last winter's uh, season review, offseason preview, because next year's Orioles are probably going to be exactly the same as this year's Orioles. Maybe they'll be a little bit better, but like if I okay, let, let's put it this way: over under on Orioles wins next year. I set the line at sixty. Do you take the over or the under on that? Sixty. Yeah, I'm gonna say over. Okay, let's let I'll bump it up. Let's say sixty-two. I'd still. I, I don't know. I think they're actually going to be a little bit feisty. I think they're actually going to do more. I think the Orioles okay. are on the upward trajectory here a little bit. I'm going to say more. But even if it's more, like what what would you feel comfortable setting that line at? Like seventy? Probably upper sixties. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like that's not very useful. No. Like you're still a really bad team. Right. You're still waiting for the guys in your mind. Like even if they have the perfect stuff. off season and spend at least like they spend a little bit on the starting pitching front, right? Like they fix that. Even though they were actually pretty solid down the stretch there with some of their young guys, so maybe there is something to to gnaw on with that. But I do wonder, um, just like you said, like what the the actual ceiling is, even if they play this off season pretty pretty well. It's it's low, and I think yeah. the other part of it is. If you're the Orioles, if you're if you're um, uh, I've already forgotten the name of their damn general manager, Mister Former Astros guy, uh, Elias. <laughs> very good job, my part. Yes, Mike Elias. Mm-hmm. If you are Mike also Mister Former Astro, he goes by both monikers. He does. You can make the argument that why would we go out and sign Anthony DiSclefani? What we need to figure out is whether or not Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken and Zach Lother and Bruce Zimmerman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are guys we can rely on going forward. And yeah, that's fine. That makes sense. You do want to figure that out, except that the results so far suggest that no, they are not guys you can rely on. What happens if these guys bust? What happens if 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 all if the entire result of all these these last few years of being an abject disaster on the field? only results in Adley Rutschman, Cedric Mullins, John Means, and a couple of back rotation starters. Hmm. What do you do then? Like, what, what, what is the pivot at that point? Do you, do you tank again? Well, now you don't have anything to trade away. Do you just kind of keep churning? I don't, I don't know. This is kind of the thing with, with entering that re- – and I think we saw – I think the team that this reminds me of in, the, in, in that sense is, is Cincinnati in kind of the mid – once they – Cincinnati in that uh, ghost period between 2012 when they lost in the division series to the Giants and roughly about two or so years ago, that kind of eight to ten year stretch in the in the rebuilding wilderness, maybe not that long, but when they started dealing with their veterans and started trying to get younger and started trying to kind of, uh, you know, create a new cycle, but it never really happened. And you could argue it still hasn't really happened, that this Reds team has reached has you know even when they started trying even when they reached the point of the rebuild where it's like okay let's start investing in players again let's start trading for for actual productive major leaguers that still hasn't really gotten them anywhere because the base is so weak they didn't get enough out of that rebuild to the point where just adding those pricey veterans and free agents and making those big trades it just lifted them from basically a 78 win team to an 82 win team that's just not enough that that's kind of the thing that that I kind of see with the Orioles is the floor is still really, really low here. Like, this is still a really bad roster and is going to be a really bad roster next year and is probably going to be a really bad roster in 2023, too. Because aside from Rutschman and Rodriguez, you're banking on or hoping for a lot of guys to take either to put last season behind them and, and kind of, you know, move in the opposite direction or to take really, really big leaps. And that can happen, but you need a lot of those guys to do that before this roster starts approaching 
the place where you can be like, okay, now let's start investing in good veterans and making trades and building toward contention. I think to me, the last few years, it's just pushed the the window. To me, it feels like the window of contention for the Orioles is not getting any closer. It just still remains this kind of vague idea off on the horizon that was so reliant on we're going to turn all these prospects and all these high draft picks and, and all these international signings we're now making again into productive major leaguers. Well, shit, man, that takes time and that takes a lot of work. And even even if you invest all the time and energy in the world into these guys, some of them just aren't going to work. Like players just bust sometimes. They get hurt. They struggle. They, they just lose their feel for shit. Like there's no guarantee that this works. And once you get this deep into the weeds with it, there's no other alternative. There's no path backwards, you know. And like I said, there are not veterans on this team with the exception of Mancini and I suppose a guy like Means that you can move to try to, you know, recharge the rebuild. And if you are moving a guy like Means, who is, you know, uh, going to be 29, that's not that you're not really moving a veteran. You're moving a guy you kind of thought was going to be there. You're already saying that the first stage of this rebuild was a failure. And now you need to kind of start all over again. Or if not start over again, then at least, you know, admit that, hey, it's going to be a few more years before this really becomes a thing. And I don't know. I, I I understand why Baltimore did what they did. Like, I think pretty much I, I've come around very much to the idea that there was no real path left for them from what the from what the, the Duquette years had had created, that they just had to do something drastic. And this is probably the most sensible route for them. But it, they really are kind of lost in the woods right now. I feel like that this is a. I'm sure that they're they're they are definitely more optimistic about themselves than I am being, and I'm just kind of generally pessimistic about the Orioles as a rule. But it, this doesn't really feel like it's moving forward with enough speed or urgency, and it doesn't really feel like they are developing the players they need to develop for this to stop being essentially the Royals. And like you said, that's all the worse in the division they're in with two of the richest teams in baseball and two of the best player development organizations in baseball. Two of the richest teams in baseball, three of the best player development teams in baseball, and a Red Sox team that does pretty good at it that most of the time. Like, this is as bad a situation as you can be in if you're the Orioles, and now you're looking now you're looking after the last two years, which were, for the most part, wasted entirely, that this, that this timeline just got that much longer, and potentially the end product got that much weaker. Hmm. So happy stuff here. Very happy stuff. I mean, that's the kind of... Go Orioles. But if you're an Orioles fan, like, what optimism do you have? At some point next year, you'll see Adley Rutschman. That's really the one thing to look forward to. What else are you... What else do you have your sights... And Grayson Rodriguez, I guess. Mm. What else is there to be happy about? Like, this is a team that has made it very, very explicit to its fans. There is nothing you're going to be rooting for or caring about on this team for quite a bit. Like, it's all sitting in the minors right now. What happens, too, to that fan base when... 80% 80% of that supposed super farm system just doesn't make it. You what if know, they just go out and sign Carlos Correa? But that's a, that's kind of the thing. It's like, that is the kind of guy that the Orioles should be looking at. If they're going to make a free If the agent. Tigers are going to really spend, like, they should be looking at the Tigers like, wait, if they're going to do this, why don't we just do this too? But I think you can make the argument that those that the Orioles shouldn't bother with the middle or bottom tiers of free agency because that makes no sense. For it doesn't move the needle enough. Yeah. No, they need to go after guys like Correa where they are still young enough that even if the first two years of that deal are kind of a waste, he's still only 30 or so years old by the time you have theoretically Rutschman in his peak and maybe Heston Kierstad is up and you still have Cedric Mullins in his peak and maybe Mountcastle develops and maybe Mays and Santander find some iota of plate discipline and like 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You still need a lot of things to go right, but you have at the very least raised the floor for what's possible because you're signing a six-war player who's all of 27 years old, you know? And I think that that was the same argument that I, I, I feel like I was making when I was writing at SI when Manny Machado and Bryce Harper were both free agents, which is that every team should be interested in them because even if you're an awful team right now, that is a huge building block for the future. That is... Instead of waiting around to see if one of your players maybe someday turns into Carlos Correa, you just go and get the actual Carlos Correa. And now you have that much more leeway if things go wrong. And if things do go wrong, even with Carlos Correa there, who cares? Do you want to know how much money the Orioles have guaranteed in contracts next year? It's pretty... It's it's remarkably... Zero. Low. Is it zero? Zero dollars. Every single player currently on their roster is is uh, either in, this, in some stage of arbitration or pre-arb. <laughs> Zero. None. They don't have a single guaranteed dollar either next year or any point in the future. People are Chris wondering Davis why there the might be a lockout. Long-term contract they had, and he's gone now. They could afford literally every single free agent that they wanted to. Any of them. Any one of them, with no concerns about what that's going to do for the future, because guys like Mullins and Rutschman and etc. are not going to get expensive for quite a long time. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of the thing. The Orioles can afford to make a mistake of that caliber because, okay, fine. You, you have $35 million a year locked up with Carlos Correa for the next seven or eight years or whatever. Who cares? You have so much room beyond that. That's the thing. It's, this, is, this is why, I, and this is, I think, this is part of why I've been so pessimistic on Baltimore because this has never felt like anything other than the, this felt like the path that the franchise kind of had, was forced into but it also felt like one that they happily accepted because it meant that they didn't have to spend any money for the next three to five years and that they're going to continue doing that and that the end result of this is probably going to be a Baltimore team that isn't very good, but hey, at least they don't cost a whole lot. So go good Orbs. job, Mike Elias and, and, and the Angelos family. You did it. You built the Royals on the East Coast, but not the good Royals, the current Royals. Way to go, guys. Go sign Verlander and Correa. That's what we need to encourage. No, that's what the Tigers need to do. I, I am so excited for when we get to Detroit to lay out my, like, 90-stage plan. <laughs> 88 of those stages are just sign Carlos Correa and Justin Verlander, and then we'll figure out the rest. But I I have an idea for the Tigers when we get to them that I, I think is going to be a lot of fun to, to throw out there as a, as a real free agency kind of hot idea that I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what the what the response is on, 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 from you on that one because I... I have a, I think I have a really, really good idea for the Detroit Tigers beyond uh, Carlos Correa and Justin Verlander. Okay, I like it. John Taylor, we can follow you on Twitter.com at J A Taylor. We can go read all the great folks that you edit. Without yes. you and without the the great folks at Fangraphs.com, what kind of content would we get over there? What kind? It, it would be a madhouse. So the off season is a really a time for us to shine for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have our 2022 top 50 free agents list out now compiled uh by ben clemens and with contributions from the rest of the fangraph staff plus contract uh projections and predictions both from uh from our staff and from our readers which we always appreciate them weighing in uh jay jaffe's jaws hall of fame profiles are coming shortly once the bbwa announces the official ballot that will begin obviously the you know if you're a hall of fame fan if you're you know if you all care about the voting process jay is pretty much the authority that exists at this point you know his, his profiles are a must read 
Uh, right now, he's he's tackling the committee ballots that are coming out for the uh, golden days, and I believe one of the very early baseball eras. Uh, I think there are a lot of Negro leaguers they're now considering as part of MLB's kind of absorption of the Negro leagues in, in terms of the statistics and history. And we'll have, as usual, Dan Samborski will soon get started, I imagine, on his off-season war charts, as long as his off-season, or sorry, his off-season zips charts and projections, uh, if you want to get an idea for what we can expect from teams next season before free agency really gets started. Obviously, we'll be, you know, we'll be covering every major free agent signing and trade as it happens. You know, we'll have our stuff on what goes on with the CBA negotiations. There's a lot coming at Fangraphs during the off-season. There always is, and this is, and I'll just do the shameless plug here. Go sign up for a membership if you'd like to be a part of all that fun. They're offered for $20 a year for the ad version or $50 a year for, or sorry, $25 and, or is it $30 and $60 now? Go on the site. You'll find out for yourself. It's very, very affordable. Help support us. Help keep us in business. Um, oh, and of course, the other major off-season thing that everyone loves at Fangraphs are prospect and farm system rankings as done by Eric Longenhagen, who will be doing First, the team-by-team uh, team lists all offseason, culminating in the big top 100 come uh, either February or March. So, obviously, a lot of big offseason stuff coming for us, especially in what is going to be a very pivotal offseason, particularly with regards to the CBA. Come on over to Fangraphs. We've got stuff pretty much all the damn time. And that's good, because Fangraphs is great, and I appreciate all the good folks, including yourself, doing great work that I can read every single day so go do that become a member if you have not already done so john taylor i will talk to you very soon sounds good nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah